Welcome to the Leaders of Interest podcast with your host, Jonathan J.J. Gerald. This is the podcast for relevant leaders, and now your host, J.J. Mr. Whit Mitchell, how are you today? I'm great. I'm up in Hanover, New Hampshire, a Friday afternoon, ready for the Dartmouth game tomorrow afternoon. Wow. I tell you, I'm looking forward to talking about your book, Working in Sync, and I wanted to kind of jog your mind a little bit. You and I have a good friend in common, Mr. Ron Price. You remember Ron? I do remember Ron. I actually just left him yesterday after doing some work with him in Cincinnati, Ohio. So Ron and I have been great friends for seven or eight years. Wow. Well, Ron was on the podcast as well. Tell us how you know Ron. So I met Ron at a conference, an annual conference that is for a group of people that do similar work, executive coaches and Phoenix, Arizona. Ron won a very prestigious award called Coach of the Year. And I said to myself when I saw that award, I said, I got to meet that guy. If he's Coach of the Year, I want to be Coach of the Year. So the next morning I came down to breakfast and there was Ron sitting alone early uh, going over some notes. And I knew that he had a um, seminar that day and I asked him if I could sit and have breakfast with him. And he, of course, if you know Ron, very humble and of course, have a seat. And I got talking to Ron and I said, Ron, you know, I'd like to hire you to be my coach. And he said, well, he was very humble and polite. He said, you know, I only work with people at a high corporate level. And I said, uh, who own their own businesses. And I said, well, I work with corporates, corporate executives, and uh, I am the president of my corporation, which was just me. And he chuckled. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, okay, the other requirement is that I charge him a lot of money. And I said, well, how much money? And he told me. And I said, well, great. Uh, I can afford that. I'll go take out a loan. And then he said, well, you also have to take this instrument that we use, a talents insights report that we use with all the leaders. And once you pass that, then then we can talk. So sure enough, he took me through that as well. So I had to kind of pass three check marks with Ron with sort of tongue in cheek. And uh, at the end of it, I hired him. And to this day, I'm still hiring Ron Price to be my coach. But the wonderful thing is we've become great friends and Ron and I have given each other and worked with each other on numerous projects within corporations at a high level. So we continue to give each other business work together and uh, he continues to be my coach. So we chat in all three dimensions throughout the year. Yeah, good, good. Ron's a very good guy. And anybody that's listening now to Wit, I suggest that you go back and listen to Ron Price's episode as well, where we discuss the complete leader. Now, Wit, because today's podcast is not about Ron, let's talk about you. Give us a quick background about Wit Mitchell. So I guess it would start why I am in a coach today. I would have to go back to my high school days or actually even earlier than that. At the ripe old age of six or seven, my grandparents invited me up to New London, Connecticut, where I watched the Yale-Harvard crew race. And it's a four-mile race from one bridge all the way upstream. And I remember watching these two crews row together and... Um, compete and listening to the fellow on the radio as the crews came up toward the finish line and how hard they were working. And they crossed the finish line in one of the few times in the last, what's it been, 40, 50 years that uh, Yale beat Harvard. But what I remember was they pulled the boats together and they, Harvard guys took off their shirts and gave them to the Yale guys, which is in the sport of rowing, you if you lose, you give your shirt over. And I thought about, wow, uh, the humility, the hard work, the teamwork, they shook hands, the true team spirit that both crews had to understand how much work they had done to get to where they got to. 
And so I was fascinated with this sport, and I rode all four years at my time at South Kent School, and then I went to the University of New Hampshire, and I showed up for the first crew club meeting, and uh, I said, I don't want to row anymore, but uh, I'd love to help out. I went down the next day, and they asked me, uh, they, there were 80 people standing around, and I said, here I am, what can I do? And as a freshman, they said, you're the head crew coach. So for four years at the University of New Hampshire as an undergraduate, I was in exercise physiology major. I'd take notes in the morning in the classroom, and I'd go out in the motorboat in the afternoon and utilize what I'd learned from my classes in the morning to make crews go faster. And for four years, I coached at the University of New Hampshire. Then I coached at the Coast Guard Academy, and then again at Dartmouth College. So the coaching was in my blood, and I've been coaching executives for probably 35 years, and it all began with my love for crew and coaching athletes. Yeah, wow. So we always have some staple questions, and what I'd like for you to do is tell us, number one, what makes WIT a leader of interest? So I've got this background that's probably a little different than most in that my education in the executive coaching realm really comes from more experience than it does from study. Certainly as I've gotten uh, older at this and more mature, I'm reading books and talking to people like Ron Price. But my passion is, if you think about it, JJ, when you think about the learnings that have most impacted you in your life, was it something you read, something you heard, or something you experienced? And when I ask that question in front of large groups of people, 95% of them will raise their hand when they think about a learning that has impacted them has been something they've experienced. I got into uh, team development work for many years by taking corporations in the 80s outdoors to experience their leadership abilities and behaviors by using high ropes course and problem-solving initiatives in the woods. And when I started to experience that myself, I then used that with my coaching clients. So what makes me a little different is that I really enjoy and think there's great value in setting up, let's call it a simulation, I actually don't really like that word, but a problem-solving initiative outside where people are relaxed, the stripes are off their shoulders, and they can engage in some problem-solving activity. And what you'll see is you'll see the same behaviors happen outside that happen in the office around the corporate table with people with their ties and jackets on. So what makes me a little different is the experiential activities that I utilized for 10 or 12 years back in the 80s with people like United Airlines and Mobile Oil. I still use those today when I'm working with groups of executives. And those learnings stick. They remember what happened when they said to somebody, do this and do that, and they do the same thing back at work. So I like to apply the learnings from their experience back into their work environment. Yeah, wow. like to really, you know, you've seen a lot of, through your coaching, you've seen a lot of athletes, uh, you know, achieve high levels of success. So what are maybe some of the lessons that athletes have learned that you can kind of transition into the workplace for a successful executive? Sure. As you mentioned, I wrote a book on athletes that I coached at Dartmouth, and they came back, 11 out of the 18 guys that I coached came back for their 25th reunion. And the book is about 11 of those experiences where each of them, at the beginning of the chapter, we talk about what they're doing today, which is phenomenal. Some of these guys, of course, it was an Ivy League school, so they're all very successful. And some remembrances that I have of each of them as coaching them. But one guy comes out in particular with this question, Sam Kinney, who, Sam was a very curious soul back in uh, the coaching days. He'd never rode before. One of the wonderful beauties of crew is that you can take somebody that's never done it before from high school and make them a true champion pretty quickly. 
Sam was always curious, coach, what could I do differently? How could I get stronger? How could I get the oar in correctly? How could I? He was always asking in a way in which he could learn more. He'd do more. He wasn't the best athlete in the boat and he wasn't the most technical, but he made the first boat. There are two boats and he made the top boat, the faster boat. 25 years later, I'm asking Sam what he's doing. Well, he went to the Tuck Business School, retired or became number one in his class, graduating class at Tuck. And then he started a company with another guy called Free Markets. And at the age of 37, they had their company went public and he actually retired at the age of 37. I said, Sam, how did you do so well? Sam said, well, coach, you know, in my working days after Dartmouth and Tuck, I noticed that there was one guy that I worked with and he did a 360 degree feedback, which is getting information from all the people he worked with. And he posted the results on his door. So everybody knew what he was good at and everybody also knew what he was working on to get better. He said, so when I started free markets, I would go around on a daily basis and I would ask for feedback. How am I doing? What could I do differently? What could I do better? What do we need to know? Well, when you do that as a CEO, you're creating a level of trust and safety in the work environment. Sam did this beautifully. So he asked for feedback written. He asked for feedback verbal. But he continually improved himself by learning through others' eyes and others' ears what he could do better. We can always get better, but we can't get better if we don't open ourselves up to hear what others feel we're doing well as well as what we're not doing well. And I want to emphasize what we're doing well. So he also asked, what am I doing that's really helping you succeed? Great question to CEOs. Go around and ask everybody what you're doing well to help them succeed or what could you do differently to help them succeed and watch out. Wow. Or another question might be, what can I do for you or what do you need from me? Exactly. Yep. So good for you. Take it one step further. What could I as CEO do for you to make you more successful in your work? Wonderful question. Sure. And I think part of coaching as a CEO, you can be a good coach by asking open-ended questions that give people time to think and give you good information as opposed to asking questions that have a yes or a no. Sure. I want the listeners to learn a little bit more about you, Wit. Now, I wonder if you maybe could take, think of a recent client. You don't necessarily have to use their name, but maybe give us an industry that they're in that was struggling and called you for some help and tell us where they were when you first met and where they are now. Sure. Take us through that process. So the industry is wine and spirits. It's a large industry. The one on the client I'm working with is one of the largest distributors of wine and spirits in the world. They called me because this fellow was having some difficulty in his communication style to his direct reports, his peers and the people above him. And unfortunately, too many people call me when they it's too late. It's <laughs> never too late, but they would say We've just lost two women in this office, and if you don't help him change wit, he will be gone. So, you know, that's, believe it or not, I get almost exact words. So I have a system that I have created, or let me say, taken and adapted from Marshall Goldsmith, who's one of the world-renowned coaches, uh, who's written a book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. But he's got a system, and I've, as I said, I've taken and adapted it called Inner Circle Coaching. So I worked with this fellow, let's just call him Fred, and what I do is that I interview Fred and I interview five or six key influencers, the people that work with him most closely, and I interview each of them at the beginning of a nine-month engagement to find out what is Fred doing really well that's helping and giving great impact, and what is Fred not doing so well. I give that information to Fred, and then I say to Fred, I'd like you to pick one behavior, pick one behavior that if you mastered you could greatly impact your world personally and professionally and it would make a great impact on the bottom line of this company. So people said, behavior, how can you improve behavior? Or how can you improve bottom line? 
we hire for skill, we fire for behavior. So when we have to fire, let somebody go, it costs three times their annual salary. So if a fellow's making $250,000, it's going to cost whatever that is, $600,000 to uh, replace him. So what I do, JJ, is that I work closely with this person for nine months on that particular behavior and some competencies. And I also work with each of the six or seven key influencers that work with Fred. So every 30 days, I'm calling the influencers and saying, Fred's working on being a better listener. And here are the three things he's working on, not interrupting, summarizing conversations, and making sure that everything's clear when they leave meetings. So fair enough. So they give him a rating, and then I go back to Fred and give him the feedback. So every 30 days for nine months, Fred's finding out from seven other people, his boss, his peers, and his direct reports, how he is doing. You can't help but master change. Now, the other people, and as part of this, JJ, I asked them for four commitments. The first commitment is to let go of the past before we get started. So you and Fred need to have a conversation and get through whatever you need to get through before we move forward because we're moving forward. Secondly, recognize Fred when he does it well. Make sure that he knows that he's making changes. Third, be open and honest with Fred. When Fred or I ask you for your feedback, be direct, clear, open, and honest. Don't say you're doing fine. Say, Fred, what I've noticed is in these meetings, you're really listening well. You're looking people in the eye. You're taking notes. Whenever you meet with that guy individually, it seems like you're interrupting him. Be clear with Fred. Be specific with Fred. He's asking for specific feedback. Be specific. And fourth, make a change yourself. So each of the six or seven other people, I'm also saying, you need to make a change too. Now, what do you think that does, JJ? Each of the people making change has greater empathy for Fred having to make change. Fred also is coaching them on their change. So it's a two-way street. So what we're doing, and then I ask each of them to pick two other people in the organization to also go through those four commitments. So I'm coaching Fred, but we're impacting anywhere from 15 to 20 people at a high level going, you know, it's like an elephant through a snake. They're all making change. They're all recognizing what each other's working on. So it's very open and transparent. So the results we got, trust went up, communication went up, morale went up, stress went down, happiness factor went up, and I've got those recorded. So it will make a difference. They went from number 38 to number two in position in their sales. So that's ROI. Wow, that's absolutely ROI. Hey, Witt, speak to the leader or the executive who's thinking about hiring an executive coach and give me two or three reasons. If somebody picked up the phone right now and said, hey, Witt, why should I hire you? Give me those two or three reasons. Absolutely. Well, let me do, do it over two down. ways. So let me give you Go two ahead. different no. things that, that I think about right off the bat. So I okay. work with leaders and teams, and I can work with a leader, and in fact, I'm doing that right now, that has just been put up a level. So, boy, we're going to hire you, and you've been at this level. We're going to bring you into a new team, so it's a brand new leader. And one, they're going to have to integrate themselves into a brand new team, and they're going to have to up their level of leadership competencies. So that would be one. Secondly, a leader or a team that is kind of flatlined. So we need to re-energize this team, or this leader needs some new things. They've been doing the same thing for a long time. We need to give them some help. We need to bring them up, which is why leadership development programs are so popular. You know, let's send somebody away and who's been leading for 20 or 30 years, and let's give them a jolt. Let's give them a bolt. So I have some processes and some ways to work with leaders to kind of, it's like an MBA in nine months. 
to bolster them up and give them some new learning, some new insights about themselves and their team so they can really get the team back up and energized and moving in a forward direction. And obviously the third one is, I hate using the word, but a leader that's maybe a little dysfunctional that's really creating a cog in the wheel and, um, you know, people are quitting or they're just not getting what they need from them. So those would be the three different kinds of leaders and teams that I would work with. Wait, what's your best advice for a new leader? Ask a lot of questions about how they're doing and what they can do for others. Turn the triangle upside down. So you see a hierarchical triangle and the leaders at the top, turn it upside down so that the leaders at the bottom and the leader cannot succeed without the team below them. But if you turn the triangle upside down and the leader's on the bottom, the leader is really working for the team instead of the team working for the leader. If the leader goes out and those team members recognize that that leader is doing everything he or she can for the team, watch out. I keep using those words, but the team will respond. There are too many teams that I walk into and I say, how's it going? What's working? What's not working? Well, the leader doesn't really know who I am. They're so busy with the tasks. You know, make some connections with your team members. Find out who they are. Find out what they do outside of work. Find out what they need from you in work but connect. There are three, when I give a presentation, JJ, there are three areas I focus on, knowing, connecting, and winning. First, know yourself. And on page 122 of my book, Sam Kenny says, the leading cause of death of an executive career is lack of self-awareness. So through instruments or through feedback or through asking others, find out those blind spots that you do well, that people appreciate, you may not know, or that you don't do well. So let's start there. Connecting is, let's make sure I connect with the people, my clients, my customers, my peers, my boss. I've got the people I'm working with now. They're calling their boss every single week. So they're coaching up. He's like, this is great. My people are calling me every week and they're giving me an update because they're in different parts of the country. And then winning is a funny word. You know, people say they don't like to compete, don't like to win. But at the end of the day, we all like to win or whatever words you want to use. So if you get to know yourself and your people, connect with your people and your clients, the winning will come easily. But being a coach, you know, I did sort of like to see my crew come across the line first. And it feels good. Yeah, who wouldn't? Hey, how important do you think trust is in an organization? It's key. It's the bottom. If you look at there's a book, uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, trust is the bottom of the pyramid. In order for the team to move forward, a leader has got to build trust. And you don't build trust in a week or a month or a year. So it takes... When I ask people, how do you build trust in your organization, they say that people keep doing what they say they're going to do over and over and over and over again. I do a lot of work with leaders around identifying their top five to six values. And once they discover what those values are, I say, now, how often are those values being met in your work environment? They usually pick one that's not being met or it's not satisfied. So what are you going to do? What actions are you going to do? to get respect satisfied for you. Don't wait for other people. You have to make it happen. JJ, if you think about behavior, which is what I coach a lot about, values drive behavior. So if respect is one of your values and it's not being met by your boss, your peers, your customers, your direct reports, watch what will happen to your behavior. It won't be good. However, if you've identified four or five behaviors and you're figuring out a way where those get met every day, behavior will follow. So when you've had a bad day or something's happened and it's upset you in a meeting or something at home, I guarantee you one of your values just got touched in not a good way. And when you've been going along for two weeks and just having great work and great productivity and you love the people you're working with, your values are being satisfied. So the values are really the hidden motivators and the behaviors are like the top of an iceberg. You can see them and they're observable. Hey, 
I'm going to give you a hypothetical. You have just been hired to run a $600 million organization with 300 people in it. What does your first 90 days look like as that new leader? Yeah, get to know your people. Yeah, don't worry about the task will get done because they've been getting done. So go out and focus more on the people than the tasks, and the task will start to get done better. Get into their offices. Get them out of their offices. Take them out for lunch. You know, go play around a golf. You can learn more from a person in an hour of play than you can in a year of conversation. So Socrates said that. So go around. I think most good leaders know this, but get to know your people quickly, and the tasks will continue to take care of themselves. When people feel that you're watching them, this is a great study. At GE, they did this many years ago, JJ. They came into a factory, and they painted the walls and changed the voltage in the lights, and productivity went up. (laughs) That's all they did, and productivity went up. The next year, they came back and changed the paint back to the walls to the color it was before and changed the lights back to the same voltage it was before. Productivity went up again, and their guesstimate was that when people feel like you're paying attention to them, they work harder. Wow, just by simply changing the paint colors. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are they doing? Oh, they're painting the walls. Really? They care about us? Yeah. (laughs) Boy, that's great. I tell people for bosses to go into people's offices, pick one person a week. Just go into their office and find out about them. Here's something they can use. And Ron taught me this. So you can go back to Ron's conversation. F-O-R-M. Pick one person a week in your organization. Take them out to lunch and do F-O-R-M. Tell me about your F, your family. Oh, occupation. How'd you get here? What did you learn in school? What other occupations have you done? 